A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode <clears throat> of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored Lezecher Nishmas Shmuel Ben Moshe Tzvi and Shandel Bas Menachem Mendel Zoldan, who arrived in Auschwitz on Dalit Sivan and were killed upon arrival. They arrived in what was seemingly the first transport from the Chist ghetto, Chust or Chist. Ghetto, and um, this was sponsored by Yitzi Fuchs, who's known, well known as a tzaddik and a big askin, a huge askin, a communal activist. But I happen to know that he's uh, also extremely knowledgeable in history and a big listener and keeps me on my toes. So, um, so it's for you also, Yitzi. So we have here and. Getting in this episode before Shavuos, uh, important to get in before Shavuos, the art site, and it brings us to the story of Hungarian Jewry during this time. Shavuos is a happy time. It's a yantif. It's a happy yantif in the, the yeshivas, in the Lithuanian yeshivas. It's considered the Yom Hadin for Tyra, the Day of Judgment for Tyra, for Kabbalah Satyra. And you may you might think that giving it that serious atmosphere makes it less of a happy yantif, but the opposite is true because for the Litvaks, the seriousness itself makes it a happy yantif. And of course, the Hasidim commemorate the yard site of the Baal Shem Tev on <coughs> on uh, excuse me on Shavuos, and uh, and even if we go back to the days of the second and third Aliyahs of uh, the secular and very socialist, Zionist-oriented kibbutzim that were starting. They they made Shavuos, they secularized the holiday by making it the Chag HaKatsir, the harvest yantif. So everyone is happy by Shavuos. But on the other hand, the in throughout Jewish history, there's been a bit of a dark cloud that uh, hung over this yantif, the first crusade, which was the the most uh, defining moment, perhaps, in the history of Ashkenazi Jewry um, in the year 1095. And uh, the Jewish communities of the Rhine River Valley 
um, mines and worms, others, they were decimated and massacred around Shavuot's time. And in fact, the tefillah, the prayer that we say on Shabbos morning of Harachimim, which is in memory of the uh, First Crusade, of the Jewish communities destroyed during the First Crusade, the original custom was to only say it the week prior to Shavuot, even though it was Shabbos Mavarchim. Um, but even though normally we won't say of Harachimim, a more sad uh, tefillah on Shabbos Mavarachim, but we, they said it specifically that week because that was the period of time that the Jews of the Rhine River Valley were killed during the First Crusade, and throughout, uh, and then and then that was you know remembered as the week before Shavuot. So it was part of collective memory. And then in more recent times, it was Hungarian Jewry that was wiped out during the. Holocaust that took place around Shavuot's time. Shavuot's time is, is the time when everyone has a yard site. Uh, from any descendants of Hungarian Jews, everyone has the yard sites around now. The entire deportations, were, which we'll speak about, was less than two months uh, to Auschwitz. And therefore, the, the period of time where everyone uh, has their yard site is around now. So, what we're going to focus on here is a little bit about the attempts to save Hungarian Jewry during this time and specifically the attempts of Rabbi Cholber Weissman. There were a lot of attempts and a lot of people involved in trying to save Hungarian Jewry. Basically all of them, except the ones at the very end with Raoul Wallenberg, uh, where almost all the other ones were unsuccessful, unfortunately. And and therefore the story here is not one of success, um, but it's more of the attempts and the ideas and the bravery and heroism of people who tried to do because they cared and because they wanted to do. And that's, and that's the important story here. And we don't measure it in the numbers of how many were actually saved, but in the significance of it that people were willing to do anything possible to save a Jewish life. And specifically, I want to speak about Rebbe Chobar Weissman, which I'll explain why. Um, he himself, Rebbe Chobar Weissman, is a huge story, a lot of aspects to it, not just about Hungarian Jewry. The group that he was a part of in Bratislava, the working group, um, he was only one member probably the most dominant member, but only one member of a larger group uh, involved in rescue activities, the working group, that's also a big story. Hungarian jury during the war years is a big story. Rescue activity in general in the war is a big story. So we can't do so many big stories. We're going to focus on one slice, one facet of of his attempt to, at saving Hungarian jury through attempts at ransom and trying to get the Allies to bomb the railways and the crematorium at Auschwitz. And, uh, and of course, the tragic outcome, which, uh, which you know, neither of it happened. So we're not going to cover all the angles of the story, but uh, we'll wait for a future opportunity. So the other thing is that Rebbe Weissmandel's rescue activities are, are, are pretty famous. They're usually thrown around as, as some sort of cliché. Um, but it's easy to confuse the different stages of his rescue work, the different places where he tried to save Jews. So the goal in this episode is also to bring a bit of clarity and context, and most importantly, nuance. It was not a very not a black and white uh, story. It was a lot of nuance, a lot of complications, and um, the background is is that the Hungarian jury during the war is is um, for the most part untouched until later in the war. There was an anti-Semitic fascist 
government in charge, the one who headed it, was Miklos Horthy, who was a admiral in the Hungarian Navy, which if you think about it is a very impressive position, considering the fact that Hungary does not have any border to the sea. Um, so their navy was almost non-existent. They had the waterway was the Danuba, but their navy was almost non-existent. So, you know, if he was the admiral of the navy, he was an impressive individual. So Horthy was not a great friend of the Jews, um, and there's a lot of anti-Semitic decrees. He's a Hitler, a Nazi ally. Um, is the Hungarian army is involved in World War II. They invade Russia together with with the German army, and they draft tens of thousands, and this is very crucial to understanding the story later on in the Holocaust, most adult males of working age, of military age, from about 18 till their mid-40s were drafted into the labor brigades in the Hungarian army, which they had to do terrible, basically slave labor, and many died there. But they, the, the key, the crucial point is that they were not around when the Germans later invaded Hungary. The most adult, um, you know, young, healthy males were not around. They were simply in the labor brigades in the Hungarian army. And there was uh, all kinds of anti-Semitic legislation. But for the most part, they, life went on. There was no ghettos. There was no Nazis. There was no Germans. There was no deportations. There was no, you know, they went to school. They went to shul. Everything, uh, for the most part, continued as normal. Um... In the meantime, occupied Europe, Sir Bechobar Weissmanel's in Bratislava, and also in Nitra, where his father-in-law had a yeshiva, and and, and uh, Slovakia. And Slovakia also wasn't exactly occupied. There's a puppet government. That's going into another story. And he is involved in rescue activity as a member of the working group. The working group, which um, which was a very diverse group. There are secular members like Andre Steiner and Oscar Newman, there were Zionist members, Kisi Fleischmann, and Avram Abafrida, Rabbi Avram Abafrida, and um, and others. And Rechobar Weissmandel was another member. He became a very dominant member, Very uh, took a lot of initiative, but he was together with everyone else. And it's important to understand that almost all of his rescue activity was never done alone. It was done together with others. So to... It has ramifications also, especially since the fact that Gisi Fleischmann was the one in charge. She she ran the working group. She was the she was the head, and she wrote many of the letters. She herself was killed in Auschwitz at the end of the war, and uh, in fact, in part of its earlier activities, when they were trying to stop the deportations from Slovakian Jewry early on in the war, and they were doing it through ransom and bribery. So where does Gisi Fleischmann go to fundraise? To Hungary. Hungary is part of the free world, and the the Jews there still were making a living, and many of them in Budapest are very wealthy. So she fundraises in Hungary, and that's how they get part of the funding to be able to stop the deportations in Slovakia. So you have to understand what's going on here. So they first try to stop the deportations in Slovakia through ransom, and uh, arguable till today how successful it was. Was it a direct result of the... Um, of the bribery or there are other factors involved. Slovakia is also a different situation because it was dealing through a puppet government uh, under the Nazis, very different than, for instance, Poland or the Soviet Union, where the Nazis uh, did not deal through any intermediaries and they were not open to any negotiation or ransom. 
And then later on, in late 1942, early 1943, the working group formulates the Europe Plan, the Europa Plan, which was to save the remaining Jews of Europe. You know, the remaining Jews of Europe in early 1943 weren't that many. And especially since the Nazis who they were dealing with, the SS were dealing with, the main SS officer who the working group dealt with from the beginning till literally the end of the war was a fellow by the name of Dieter Wislaseni. Dieter Wislaseni was the one who was the most open to negotiations. He wielded a lot of power in the SS. He even claimed that he wasn't anti-Semitic, which seems like an incredible claim. And But he definitely dealt with the negotiate, negotiators throughout the war. He was their main go-to guy, which we'll get back to him also. So the Europe plan, which was, again, in 42-43, Hungary is not on the on the board yet. The Hungary is, there, there is no deportations. They're not under the occupied. They're not occupied. So what does it mean, the remaining Jews of Europe? The remaining Jews of Europe did not include, never even reached the negotiating table, any Jews in the occupied parts of the Soviet Union, anyone who is still alive. Germany and Austria, any Jews there, also non-negotiable, they were not going to be considered, and probably also not any Polish Jews. So, say the remaining Jews of Europe, it means the overwhelming majority of the remaining Jews of Europe were not even considered in the negotiations. Mr. Sonny said that he can try to save the Jews in Poland, but he does not really have any influence there, is different SS there, and they work differently in the East. And of course, Hungary wasn't at risk yet, so they weren't part of the negotiations. And Slovakia had already stopped the negotiations because of, uh, stopped the deportations, excuse me, because of the uh, earlier negotiations of the working groups. So who was this remaining Jews of Europe? Um, the remaining Jews in France? Possibly Greece, even though during the negotiations of the Europe plan, Vislaseni himself went down to Greece with his boss Adolf Eichmann and deported the Greek Jews very quickly to Auschwitz. So it's unclear um, what Vislaseni's position was there. Perhaps some Jews in Romania, whatever was left of Belgium Jewry. Dutch Jewry was pretty much already gone. So that was the Europe plan that also fell through. And then the, in March 1944, we reach our story here, the Nazi invasion of Hungary. In March 1944, and they immediately want to plan on starting to deport Hungarian Jewry to um, Auschwitz. And it's going to go in three phases. The first phase would be Karpatha-Russia, which would include Chist, which we mentioned at the beginning of this uh, episode. Um, Karpatha, Russia, and Transylvania, which were, Karpatha, Russia was taken over by Hungary from Czechoslovakia, and uh, Transylvania was taken over by Hungary from Romania at the beginning of the war. The second phase would be Hungary proper, the areas of, of, uh, of Eastern Hungary, Mishkolts, Debrecen, which I would have used as reference points up until a few years ago. Today, I would say the area of Kerestir. And then in the third phase of the deportations, the Nazis plan on deporting last the Jews of Budapest itself. Now, only the latter one, only the Jews, part of the Jews, partially of Budapest were saved at the, when the deportations stopped. And now with that, uh, Germany has invaded Hungary at this later stage of the war because Horthy was planning on switching sides. He saw the Russians were advancing. In, uh, in 1944, the Russians were sweeping through Eastern Europe. So they, um, so they decided, so they decided it's, 
it's appropriate to switch to the side of the allies because who wants to be on the losing side of the war? And uh, Hitler was not excited about that, so he invaded Hungary. So Rabbi Chobar Weissmandl understands that Hungarian Jewry is now going to be deported. And you have to understand that the Nazis were so um, intent on wiping out Hungarian Jewry at this last phase of the war. They're losing the war. The Russians are around the corner. And yet they they want to take care of it as soon as possible, so that um, so that they 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 can they can do it. So they want to do it very quickly. And ultimately, it happens in a span of less than two months, from May fifteenth to July 9th, Four hundred and thirty-seven thousand Hungarian Jews are deported to Auschwitz. Literally, the greatest massacre of the entire Holocaust. So decisively, and so totally, and so. Such terrifying speed, uh, scary how how and how incredibly uh, fast they did it. So Mechaber Weismandel's approach was a to raise money uh, through the West, through other contacts in Hungary itself, um, and he's operating from Bratislava. He's not in Hungary, and try to do the time-tested uh, ransom through Vislaseni. Now over here, he's. Not directly involved. He's not involved as as in the directly involved in the negotiations. Um, he doesn't. He and the working group do not want to risk Slovakian uh, Jewry, the remaining remaining thirty thousand Jews in Slovakia, and he feels that if he's too directly involved, then it can risk uh, the la- renewing the deportations in Slovakia. So he's indirectly involved. He's dealing with um, Vislaseni at any time. Dieter Vissosetti goes back from Budapest to Berlin. He stops in Bratislava, and as incredibly enough as it may sound, he's, he's, he goes and visits the working group headquarters and gives them a report and an update about the negotiations with Jewish leaders in Budapest. So an incredible situation. That's how involved Vissosetti was in the negotiations and how he trusted the working group that they were players in the uh, in this scene. Um he dealt directly with Andre Steiner, with Fleischmann, even with Rumchober Weissmandel. So, so they're indirectly involved that way. His second uh, approach was that he besieged the Allies. He sent out letters and reports and through Switzerland and through here and through there and telegrams to bomb the rail lines, to bomb bridges, to bomb tunnels, to bomb the crematorium itself. To um, in Auschwitz, in Auschwitz, and then to bomb all these roads and, and railways to Auschwitz. That was his second approach. By the way, as far as a the tunnel, there was a tunnel on um, on uh, on the Hungarian-Slovakian border that the trains leaving Hungary to Auschwitz would have to pass through. So he wanted to have partisans blow that up, but he uh, did not want he and the working group did not want it to happen on the Slovakian side of the border or to have any Jew do it, because again, that would put the Slovakian Jews at risk um, to renew the deportations. So he tried to get Hungarian partisans on the other side of the border to do it, but that did not work out. The third approach that he had was to warn Hungarian Jewish leaders, including Pinchas Freudiger, who was the head of the Orthodox Jewish community in Budapest, about the upcoming deportations. And he tells them in letters, Escape, hide, use bribery, and he even tells them to have to prepare armed revolt. He says revolt against the Nazis, fight back. 
He tells them to do anything possible. This is the upcoming, the, these deportations are, don't believe anything the Nazis say, they're deporting you to Auschwitz. So the negotiations begin in Hungary with rescue activists there. Like I said, Freudiger, the Orthodox leader in Budapest. There was a guy, Stern, who was the neologue uh, leader in Budapest, which represented the majority of Hungarian Jews and of Budapest Jews. And then uh, Joel Brand and Rudolf Kastner, who were the Zionist leaders, they represented a much smaller minority. Zionism in Hungary was not uh, majorly developed at that point. And the Nazis um, vacillated between preferring um, either trucks or money. It was late in the war. They they weren't sure what they wanted, and uh, and Vesalsani kept on coming back. Eichmann himself met with the negotiators for a time, and it goes back and forth. Now the Zionists in in uh, in Budapest were negotiating through their superiors in the Istanbul Palestine office, while others were negotiating through Switzerland to representatives of world Jewry, like Sally Mayer of the Joint and representatives of the World Jewish Congress. There's also a Zionist representative there, Nathan Schwab, and of course Isaac Sternbuch, who worked with the Vadat and with Weissmandel, and, uh, and his wife, real true heroine, Recha Sternbuch, is also a story. So there's a lot of people involved, and Weissmandel criticized the Zionist brand, and Kastner for dealing with Istanbul, where he said he should have dealt more through Switzerland, through the representatives of World Jewry. Not that... Weissmandel had so much success in dealing with those representatives. He was extremely critical of Sally Mayer, who seemed to be very indifferent and not helpful. There's a, a figure who's very much in dispute till today, Sally Mayer, of the joint. And uh, what was his role? What could he have done more? You know, the joint did not want to transfer uh, money to to uh, Nazi, to enemy territory. That was an issue, but <clears throat> still... The, the way he dealt with it, how he passed on information, very problematic individual. Uh, that will have to also wait for another time. So there is a bit of a myth um, that it was that was depicted after the war, mainly for political reasons, um, and also because of the figure of Rebbe Chalber Weissmandel um, and how broken he was after the war and the way he presented the story, um, of that it was as if it was religious Jews versus the Zionists, and, and as if and as if one one group wanted to save more than the other, it's it's a little more complicated. Firstly, because the working group had Zionists on, in the working group. Frieder was a Zionist. Fleischmann was a Zionist. She ran the working group, and she complained about dealing with uh, people just as much as Rebbe Weismandel did in her letters. Of course, she couldn't testify after the war because she was dead. She was in Auschwitz, so her voice was silenced. Um, he was she was Rebbe Weismandel's cousin. They worked together. Um, and on the and Sally Mayer, who was part of the problem, was from the Joint, representing American Jewry, a very not Zionist organization, uh, just the opposite. The Zionist historiography tried to minimize the Joint's role after the war because they did not like the Joint. So there's a lot of nuance here. There's a lot of post-war politicization um, uh, um, a- afterwards because of the trauma. Because of uh, ultimately, it was the Nazis who. Uh, who deported the Jews, um, and not anyone else. Now, Rabbi Chalver Weissman also pointed out that there is too many people negotiating. He said these things have to be done carefully, 
and the fact that too many people were involved frustrated Eichmann and Vilsasani. They didn't know where to to go with it, and that's what uh, that's what that's what caused it to fail. That's also a possibility. Um, it eventually became a dispute among amongst academics. Um, Professor Yehuda Bauer, who's still around in his 90s, one of the greatest uh, Holocaust researchers in the world, has written about it. Some of it, uh, some of it, you know, speculative and, and controversial views. And then there's, of course, uh, Dr. Abraham Avram Fuchs, uh, who wrote um, based based on mainly on Rebbechalber Weissmandel's testimony. And his book, uh, Karasi Ve'en Aina, was actually translated and published by Art Scroll, becoming one of the only, if not the only, Art Scroll academic book with full source notes, footnotes, a great book. Uh, I think it's called The Unheated Cry. It was published over 30 years ago. A uh, good book. So they're dealing with Vissel Herman Krumi, Kurt Becher, Eichmann himself. And there's fundraising, there's passing information to Hungarian Jewry and the West. And, the West. and like I said, one of the aspects of it was to try to get the West the Allied powers to bomb the rails to Auschwitz. And and that's also um, a question I get on almost every group. You know, why didn't they bomb the rails to Auschwitz? Michal Weissmandel sent letters to them, and and the uh, and it reached the Western powers. Uh, the Varatzala brought that request to them and other groups, and, and they didn't. And everyone knows they didn't bomb the rails, they didn't bomb the crematorium. So there's... There's a few things that need to be speak, spoken about around this. First of all, the who we, who's the allies? So mainly people point to the Americans and the British. There happens to have been a third ally, the Soviets. Now, the Soviets were the only air force that was within flight range for most of the war. And no one says, hey, why didn't Stalin bomb the railways not only to Auschwitz? He could have done the railways to Treblinka, too, two years earlier. And the answer is, is that not only did Stalin not really care about these things, but also the Soviet Air Force was a, was a, um, it was not a offensive bombing Air Force. They never did the bombing, carried out the bombing. They weren't capable of it. They were a, a, uh, a cover Air Force. They were, uh, they were a cover for, they were mainly fighters, uh, not bombers. And they were a cover for the ground troops, for the artillery. They were a strategic, we would call Air Force and not an offensive bombing. Okay, we got rid of the Soviets. As far as the Americans and British are concerned, until the summer of 1944, which is when Hungarian Jewry was deported, so bombing the rail stations were not even an option because they their planes couldn't have reached there. Until they had forward bases in northern Italy, in, not in northern, in, in, in Italy, in the really southern Italy, they, they were not able to even reach there. So it wasn't a possibility altogether. You have to look at a map and understand how far uh, Auschwitz was from the Western Front. Okay, so now we're holding in the summer of 44. They have the ability of reaching there. So there's quite a, quite a bit uh, written about, and there's some great documentaries about also, about precision bombing during the war. The Allies wanted precision bombing for many reasons. They wanted to hit um, industrial factories and submarine pens where they built U-boats. And the reality of the 1940s aircraft is, shockingly, that precision bombing didn't exist. And this caused their, a lot of their bombings, their military bombings, to be unsuccessful and failures because precision bombing simply did not exist. And, you know, you're trying to hit a railway, uh, a, rail, a railroad would have been, 
not nearly impossible, but literally impossible. And their attempts at stopping the supply trains from reaching the Western Front were met with, uh, with failure also. Um, bombing the crematorium would have posed the same uh, problem with an added danger, that they would miss the crematorium and bomb the camp, and 100,000 uh, prisoners would have been killed and the crematorium wouldn't have been touched. So the, the precision simply didn't exist. Not only that, but even if they would have hit the railroads, it took the average of two days for the Nazis to fix a railroad. So what, what is, would have been better would be to have b- bombed bridges, which Rebbe Weissman specifically said, he was aware of a lot of these things, and he said they should hit target bridges, but bridges uh, posed the same issue with precision. Beyond all that, there was a lack of interest on the Allies' part, and uh, no one's justifying them and saying they're big tzaddikim, and they may have been anti-Semitic, or at least apathetic, not caring, and they didn't put it uh, high on their list of priorities. They put military targets. So I'm not trying to to make them look any better. I'm just putting it in the uh, proper context. And so it's unlikely that the bombing uh, would have done anything or very, very little to have uh, stopped the the um, the uh, the deportations. But Rumachover Weissman definitely in letter after letter after letter after letter, begged them, literally. It's heart-rending to see. He really, you know, his heart was broken, and he really carried this his care for every Jewish life, and his attempt at saving every Jewish life is really, literally unmatched by any rescue activist. Rebbe Weissmandl stands in a league of his own, the way his dedication to the cause, and the risks that he took, and the ideas that he came up with to try to save more Jewish life. Um... Eventually, the story of the ransom uh, reaches the British, and it's reported in the BBC and the Times. They break the story on July 20th. Keep in mind, the date is important because it only happens after the deportations are already stopped. Horthy stops the deportations on July 9th because of international pressure. The international pressure, partly because of Mechobar Weissmandl and other people who send out these messages to the West, and the Varad Salam, by now there's a war refugee board that has been set up in uh, the United States government. And all these things together, there's international pressure from America, from England, even from the Vatican at this point, which, which, was, which was way too little and way too late in coming. But Horthy caves into the pressure and does not allow the SS to continue the deportations. And therefore the deportations are already over. And, and it's, it's tragic that Joel Brand's mission to Istanbul and later to Syria and Cairo, and and Rebbe Weissmandl's letters, and and all these other things, and continued negotiations with the Nazis that they cynically continued with them. These all happen. Most of them happen either deep into the deportations already, or after they're already over. In other words, it was already a done deal. The 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 deportation of Hungarian Jewry happened so quickly that they didn't even realize how how quickly it was done, and how uh, useless and pointless it was to continue these negotiations. Now, there are later attempts at trying to save the Jews of Budapest, but at that point, neither the Relief and Rescue Community of Kastner and Brand or Mechalber Weissmandl, who was hiding in a bunker in Bratislava at that point, were involved. It was mainly the involvement of international diplomats like Raoul Wallenberg and Karl Luntz, the glass houses. This is when it was Hungarian fascists. It was after the Arrow Cross Nazi Party in Hungary, Hungarian Nazi Party, take, took over and overthrew Horthy and took over the government. 
and this is the last weeks as the Russians are already uh, shooting artillery into Budapest. Now there's already no more Auschwitz at that point. Auschwitz is already closed or in the process of closing up, and Rabbi Weissman was not involved in that. There was a Slovak uprising in the summer of 1944, and in that context, the Nazis resumed the deportations of Slovakian Jewry, and at that point, that's when Gysi Fleischmann is killed, and that's and at that point, Rachel Weissmandel and his wife and five children are put on a train to Auschwitz. He uh, had smuggled a file into a loaf of bread. He cut through the boards of the train and of the speeding train. He begs his wife and children to jump with him. They say, no, we can't jump. We refuse to jump. He begs and begs and begs, and they refuse, and he jumps, and they don't follow him. And his wife and children are killed in Auschwitz. He makes it back to Bratislava with a broken leg. He's in a bunker with the Strupka Vareba, and he survives the war, a broken individual, both because of uh, what he imagined he could have saved more and because he wasn't even successful at the end of the day of saving his own family. He remarries and has a new family, and at the and he has five children. You know, he had five before the war, and he now had five after the war. And at the bris of his fifth and final son of his second family, this tragic figure who did so much to try to save, he gets up and he died shortly afterwards. He passed away to quite a young age you know, of a broken heart. And he says, you know, he was, he was even though he was uh, Slovakia, he was... Uh, he was Ashkenaz. He was from the Chesam uh, Soifer Slovakia, not not from the Hasidim. So he davened Nusach Ashkenaz. So he said, "We say in Kedusha Nekadesh Shemcha Ba'Olam Keshem Shemakdishim Oisay B'Shmei Marayim." We're going to sanctify your name in this world the same way they sanctify your name B'Shmei Marayim up in the other world, which is talking about the angels. And he paraphrased it, and he says. My first family is in the Shmei Maraim. And now that I have five children that corresponds to the five children that I lost, I'm asking, we should, they should sanctify God's name in this world. The same way my previous five children are sanctifying God's name in the other world. So this was a little taste of the attempt at saving Hungarian Jewry. This was Yehuda Geberer. Uh, at Jewish History Soundbites, you can reach me at Yehuda.YehudaGeberer, I'm sorry, at YehudaGeberer.com, Geberer is G-E-B-E-R-E-R, and you could subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, um, for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. Check out our new website, and don't forget to check out the Mir um, virtual tour, along with the other exciting things there at the Mir virtual dinner at the Mir.live. It's still up, and enjoy it, and I hope you enjoyed.